food insecurity is not going away. It's not returning to normal. And really, it should be none. We really shouldn't have food insecurity in Australia. It still shocks many Australians that people in our community are unable to access the right food or enough food. In so many ways, it seems we live in such abundance, but it's not like that for everybody. Uh, We've definitely seen the pandemic um, exposing many of the weaknesses in our food systems, empty shelves, reduced income for many people, and so many of the normal ways of accessing food were stymied by lockdowns and other supply chain issues. Today on Dirty Linen, something a little bit different from normal, we're speaking to someone with expertise in the area of food security. Dr Catherine Kent is a public health nutritionist, a lecturer in public health at Western Sydney University. Catherine, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks for having me, Danny. It's a pleasure to be here. Really great to have you on the show. Could we start by, um, yeah, just getting getting you to tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Absolutely. So, uh, I'm really interested in food security and some people think um, Australia is a food secure nation. What our research shows us is that food security um, is actually not whole in Australia. There are lots of people within our community who don't have enough to eat every day. And there's a very technical definition for food security, which says food security exists when all people at all times have physical, social and economic access to enough food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. But what it all really boils down to is, do people have enough money to put healthy food on the table every day? And our research throughout the pandemic in Tasmania showed that during a lockdown, one in four Tasmanian households had run out of food and they couldn't afford to buy any more. And this number really dwarfed the approximately 6% of Tasmanians in 2019 who were classified as food insecure. And this was all related to the pandemic, um, panic buying, restaurants and shops closing, social distancing restrictions, and and uh, of interest to us are those food supply challenges where the food system wasn't necessarily uh, resilient enough to um, keep the food supply stable throughout all of that um, crazy time we experienced. That is, I mean, an extraordinarily high number of households that are experiencing food insecurity. I mean, how does that compare to what we normally see in Australia? So, in 2019 in Tasmania, around 6% of households were food insecure, and this jumped up to one in four during lockdown. And we thought that was because at the time, You know, there was a lot of panic buying. The shops were stripped bare of food. People developed different shopping habits because they were worried about getting COVID maybe while shopping and the food supply was unable to react to the changes. But what we showed around, say, six months following the end of the lockdown in Tasmania was that still one in five households uh, were food insecure. So what this is really indicating to us is that the economic circumstances of families and households, um, even up to a year post a lockdown, we're still struggling to put healthy food on the table. And what that really shows to us is it's 
not just the availability of food, which of course, you know, is food available in the shops and and other shops stocked with produce. That is definitely part of the picture. But economic access to food um, is really important. So if people's jobs are... um, uh, you know, reduced or their hours are reduced or their income is reduced. That was the biggest predictor of food security in our research. Um, and I think that's pretty apparent, you know, when we're, when we're asking people in Australia, have you run out of food and you can't afford to buy any more? Um, uh, that it's that economic access to food that's so important. What are some of the steps that you see people taking? I mean, basically, okay, they're, they're looking in their wallet there's there's not enough money to buy whatever they want or they know that they've maxed out the credit card. I mean, what kinds of steps do people take next? So our research showed that food insecure people coped in a lot of different ways and not in the ways in which I or the government perhaps think that people with food insecurity cope. So the government puts into place emergency food relief through charitable agencies um, like Food Bank or Second Bite who uh, repurpose um, or, or take food from the food supply and, um, and make it available to people who might have run out of food and can't afford to buy any more. But in our research, what we actually showed is that food insecure people did basically anything else before seeking emergency food relief or charitable food relief. So they ate less food, they ate lower quality food, they asked their friends and family for food or borrowed money for food, they bought food on credit, they sold their possessions for food. More people even foraged for food uh, rather than going to emergency food relief, which was the lowest coping strategy that people employed. And I think what that really shows is that we can't just rely on people seeking charity for um, uh, for food if they run out, but we need some more long-term solutions in making sure people don't run out of food every day. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really shocking to think that, 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 that it's 5% of people, you know, the people that you see in the, in the line for food bank is – five percent of the people that are experiencing food insecurity it just means that that problem is so hidden it's quite scary absolutely and we know that emergency food boxes are not enough and we need much more funding for transitioning to what we we would call in kind of um in the the research land that i work in but a transition to community resilience which means that communities are set up in a way that they can support each other um, to have healthy access to food, access to healthy food every day. So what are some of the solutions that you think um, could help in this situation? So there are a lot of solutions um, that I think are really important and um, they they really are centre around providing a lot more funding towards uh, building resilience and building people's skills in um, getting access to food. But we actually conducted a study to ask Australian um, consumers what would they want um, if we were trying to reduce food insecurity. And uh, that's this uh, study that we've just had published um, that you'd be aware of, Sunny, that we um, asked consumers what do they want from a more resilient food system uh, following the pandemic. 
a lot of it focused on relocalization of the food supply. So they want food that's grown, bought and sold all within one community and they want more resources for uh, communities to be more self-sufficient through community gardens or school programs um, to teach people about nutrition. Yeah, I mean, I think when you say teaching people about nutrition, it also makes me think about these food boxes that we know, you know, people have to go through a lot before they'll even access one, but then the food box isn't necessarily a solution. People need to know what to do with the food that's in the box. And I think it strikes me so often when you think about these, you know, people that are really stressed and perhaps, you know, really, yeah, if you've got hungry kids to feed, that's one of the most stressful situations of all. And if you've got a random box of food that's not the stuff you're used to cooking, I feel like that's not going to solve the problem in a lot of cases. Absolutely. It's kind of a Band-Aid fix in that if we give you this food, then you won't be hungry. But a major part of food it's in food security is what we call agency, and that's having control over the decisions that you make around your food. Everybody should have agency when it comes to the food that they eat, and they should also have high levels of food literacy so they know how to make healthy choices for them and their families and that is definitely a focus of programs that try to build resilience and try to build um, uh, food security in within communities. I, I know that one of the points in your study was around food being exported, and I suppose in Tasmania, which is such a food bowl and does export a lot of food, perhaps that's a particular um, concern of people. But I think in, in all of Australia, we know that we export so much food. What kinds of things did your study show in that regard? So our study was conducted in Tasmania and Tasmania is a very special place. Tasmania grows a lot of fresh produce um, and it's a real foodie paradise, to be honest. So it's completely shocking that a island state that grows so much food um, would not be feeding um, the people who live there. But within Tasmania, there's a real focus on an export economy and it, uh, food exports are very important for the Tasmanian economy. In our study, though, there was a huge tension. People were strongly of the opinion, and remember that our study was conducted within a lockdown, so when the shops were stripped bare of food and, um, and people were going without – that there was a big tension and they said Tasmania really needs to be completely self-sufficient. It re- we really don't feel comfortable relying on private-owned supermarket chains and all of the food that is grown here, their perception was that it was being grown for export rather than supporting the needs of the population. And whether or not that's true, and there might be people listening to this podcast thinking, well, hold on, that doesn't make sense or necessarily align with um, their perspective about um, how Tasmania could feed its population. I'm just presenting this as the the thoughts of Tasmanians or or people who responded to our study. They really wanted food that was grown for Tasmanians and by Tasmanians, and they felt that those people who were growing food for export – were hit a lot harder by the pandemic and the disruption of the supply chains than those producers who were able to um, make um, use of the local domestic market. 
Mm, it's so interesting that that's a perception, perhaps not necessarily the way yeah, things have actually been working. I know that I think the National Farmers Federation often talks about, you know, the, the vast quantities of food that are grown in Australia. I think we grow enough food. I'm probably getting this wrong, but I think they say we grow enough food for 90 million people and therefore, you know, we should be able to export the majority of what we grow. But there does seem to be, you know, uh, I mean, where where do the problems lie? I mean, is it in the supply chain? Is it in policy? Of course, it's in people not having enough money um, and, you know, costs going up. We know inflation such a big issue at the moment. I mean, I guess you, you, yeah, you're talking about what people think are the problems, but do you know what the solutions are? Look, the solutions are very, very complicated and it's not just the um, role of one sector to solve all of the problems with the, the food supply chain. But what our study does show is that consumers, um, there's a, there is a real growing um the word I'm looking for, there's growing support from consumers for building this local uh, food supply and um, they seem to want more local food production and distribution um, and whether or not this is economically viable, you know, I'm not sure um, and I think that a lot of people would, would say that it, it's not and that it has its challenges but perhaps a balance can be struck in terms of this um, local food production and uh, food grown for export to find a balance between, um, between this, especially when disaster strikes because I think what we all saw was that um, – when the, the pandemic first began and people were hoarding food and um, there were import and export restrictions, that things didn't work. We really relied on industry measures to put restrictions on the number of staple food items that people were able to buy. And I feel most, cons most consumers in our study, at least, reported that this wasn't equitable. This impacted people um, uh, some people really badly, especially those with large families who might normally say bought, buy more than two tins of tomatoes or two packets of pasta. And actually much more needs to be done from a disaster preparedness perspective and from a government perspective in order to prepare for those future supply chain shocks. Um, and these learnings that we've had from the pandemic also relate to other disaster type situations such as bushfires or, um, or, or floods that might disrupt supply chains across Australia. Mm, I mean, yeah, it does seem crazy to let, you know, the big two supermarkets decide how many eggs people are allowed to have. I mean, we've, we've outsourced so much to the private sector, haven't we? But food security perhaps is, doesn't seem to be one of the ones that should be outsourced. Yeah, that's exactly right. A, a much more coordinated response would be, um, would be appropriate. And that's what consumers were asking for in our study. They really wanted producers so not just governments, but they also wanted producers to have systems in place and businesses to have systems in place that would allow them to really quickly change the way in which um, they supply their customers um, because that was perceived as a way to try and maintain food security for households because um, there seemed to be a lot of disruption between producers and consumers during the pandemic as well. Mm. And if we could just go back, to, uh, and I hope I'm remembering correctly, to your definition of food security, and it was that people should have the food that they 
want as well as the food that they need to sustain themselves. I mean, to me, it feels like there's some sort of problem we've got ourselves into as a society where we feel that we should have anything that we want at any time, you know, whether it's something that's out of season or something from the other side of the world. I mean, do you think that there is some sort of benefit in reframing the ideas of what, I don't know, we deserve or that we should have as as consumers? So food security is really multidimensional. It talks about that the food is available, there is enough food available, that people can access that food both physically and financially, that the food supply is stable and able to withstand shocks. And there's a fourth domain which is called utilisation. It refers to um, uh, the quality of food available but also people's knowledge of food. So food security is not just are the shops full of food, but really can they uh, act physically and financially access it? And once they get it, can they use it? Seasonality of, of food um, is really important and it actually fits within that utilisation domain because some people have higher levels of what we call food literacy. So they understand um, a lot about food and they know what to do with it after they've bought it. Um, and seasonality falls within that because, uh, of course, we we should eat seasonally, but the way that the global food supply is set up is that we can get oranges from, um, you know, California um, out of season, and so um, some people just expect to have that year-round. If we're considering um, a food people being food secure, it's that they would be able to make do with the food that's available uh, because they would have a higher level of knowledge of about food, a higher level of food literacy. So uh, food security doesn't just stop with is there enough food, but can people use it and do they know what to do with that, um, uh, it, that food once they get it? And I feel that what the pandemic has really highlighted and our study showed was that consumers in our studies reported that they wanted more support with food utilisation. They wanted to know more um, about food literacies. They felt that people who had higher levels of food literacy were able to be more resilient to shocks. So um, Tasmania, of course, grows food that's very seasonal. And if we were to rely on just Tasmanian-grown food to um, service the needs of its population, that people would need more support in in understanding what to do with the food that was available. And that's really all part of the same picture. Yeah, it's it's really complex, but I suppose if there if there is a benefit that can come out of this, that people see a greater need for food literacy is actually a good thing. And I suppose you know culturally appropriate food would wrap into that as well, wouldn't it? You know, not not people don't always want to eat the same thing as their neighbour. Absolutely, and uh, that would all uh, that all really came out within us within our studies absolutely culturally appropriate food is very important it was also very important to note that um uh people who were temporary residents of tasmania were some of the most food insecure groups of the um of the population throughout the pandemic uh which 
might be in part related to um, disruption of the food supply. But of course, these groups were also ineligible for government financial support uh, in the JobKeeper JobSeeker scheme that was um, only available to residents of Australia. And so were therefore probably much more economically impacted as well throughout the pandemic. Mm. Um, Catherine, what is it that got you into this field? Well, I'm I'm very um, passionate about trying to, um, I guess, farm, be a researcher who's contributing to policy changes and contributing to the health, especially of vulnerable communities. I'm really interested in um, food security. I think it's absolutely abysmal that even in a high-income country like we live in, Australia, that people are running out of food and they can't afford to buy more. And uh, anything that I can do to try to ensure that people have enough food to put on the table every day um, is of utmost importance to me. I've also been lucky to work with absolute game-changing researchers in this field in Tasmania, in particular my colleague Sandy Murray, who really um, spends her whole life, I think, really um, making sure that people have equitable access to food. Um, I think once you start to hear the stories of people who are impacted by food security, then you can't not do anything about it. Um, And yeah, I'm really lucky to be able to have a job in which we can collect data, um, try to understand people's experience of trying to eat healthy every day um, and trying to advocate through communicating to people like politicians or people who work in the food system um, to try and support vulnerable people in our society. Mm, love it. So, yeah, it's such such great work. Um, it's really been fantastic to learn more from you today about what you do and um, about, yeah, the way people are relating to the food supply chain. It feels like eaters are pretty well informed and ready to be a little bit more activated. Is that how it feels to you? Absolutely. I think um, after reading the responses to our survey, I was really surprised at how knowledgeable people are about the current food supply system and the way it's set up. And they have some really great ideas about how it could be improved into the future so that they can be food secure, how they can maintain their food security. And although um, some of these uh, recommendations that consumers have come up with might not end up being the ultimate solution to maintaining food security, I think that it really should give politicians and other policymakers um, some food for thought when they're thinking about how they can best support maintaining food security um, into the future. Because what our research is really showing is that food security is food insecurity is not going away. It's not returning to normal and that we need some concerted effort from the governments and from um, our policy actors to put into place some strategies to return food security um, at least back to pre-COVID levels. And really, it should be none. We really shouldn't have food security, food insecurity in Australia and um, that we need to take the voices of consumers seriously um, if we're really thinking about how we're going to set up our food system to maintain food security in the future. Fantastic. So well said. I really hope that the um, the policymakers and the powers that be 
are listening and um, that, yeah, we can see some some really swift and sustained improvements. Um, thank you so much for sharing with us today, Catherine Kent um, from Western Sydney University. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This